Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come. Come and open up our eyes and ears and our hearts to the word you have for us this morning. Speak, O Lord. Your servants are listening. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? What would it have been like to have been there in those haunting dark moments when our Lord Jesus was led to his death? The spiritual we just sang causes us to put ourselves in the story of those awful events. You know, I've been reading and thinking about Jesus' death all week in preparation for this sermon, and I have to agree with the hymn. Sometimes it causes me to tremble, to tremble, to tremble. Many of the commands in Scripture, actually one of the most frequent commands you might be surprised to hear, is that God commands us to remember. To remember. To bring the past to bear in the present. And when God says remember, He doesn't just mean just, you know, just reflect on it, just recall some facts to mind. No, you remember in such a way as to bring what happened sometime long ago, to remember it in such a way that it actually becomes a present reality in your life and impacts the present. That's what God means when he says, remember. And so when we remember events, especially the scriptures, so even though we weren't there physically, if we do the work right, we'll bring it into our present lives and it will impact us today. We're in a series on the cross of Christ, and today I want to remember the events that led up to the death of Christ, or in Hebrew, the Messiah. And the question I want to answer is, why did Christ die? Why did Christ die? We could give you a thousand answers to that question. And I'm going to be answering that question from maybe more of the human side of the equation. Uh, We kind of have the other side, kind of the theological or the Godward side of all these things that happened on the cross. You think of words like atonement or reconciliation with God or redemption and salvation. Uh, And those are wonderful, helpful theological categories that help us understand the cross. But today I want to focus on the actual events. What happened that led to Jesus' death? Why did the people that Jesus came to save put him on that cross? How, from a human point of view, did Jesus' ministry career end by being deserted by his disciples, who followed him for three years, by being rejected by the religious leaders of his day who were supposed to know the scriptures, and then finally by being crucified by the Romans. How did that happen? How did it come to that? And what do these events have to do with us? That's what we're going to be diving into this morning. So why did the Messiah die? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? What happened? Well, the first thing that happens is that Judas betrayed him. Judas betrayed him. Ah, the famous traitor of our Lord. Is there a worse legacy in all of history than that of Judas? I can't think of one. It has to be the worst legacy uh, in all of history. Now, Judas, he was one of the 12 apostles uh, that Jesus actually chose to be with him in a special way. And so Judas had an upfront view of everything that Jesus did. He sat with Jesus, uh, sat across the table from Jesus over multiple meals. He was at the fireside at night when they were talking about ministry. He saw Jesus heal things you didn't think people could be healed from. He saw demons driven out of people. He heard all of the extra explanations of Jesus' authoritative and mesmerizing teaching. Judas heard it all, 
And he saw it all up front. But seemingly out of nowhere, Judas makes a fateful decision. Let's look at the text. Matthew 26, I'll have it on the screen for you. It says, One of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Well, if you've ever read the Gospel of Matthew, if you've been reading the Gospels with us in our Covenant Challenge, you're in, you've been reading Matthew with us, and uh, this really just comes out of the blue. This comes out of nowhere. Uh, the only warning, we get one warning, and it's back in chapter 10, and it says Judas is eventually going to betray him. That's the only warning we get. We get no other signs of what's going on in Judas or why this is happening. And we have to ask, well, what happened? What would motivate Judas, who knew Jesus so well over these three years, what would motivate him to betray our Lord? Many, many people have tried to answer this question. They tried to use modern psychology to go back and kind of psychoanalyze Judas and figure out what was going on. And I, I think at the foundational level, I have to agree with N.T. Wright, who essentially says sometimes evil is just irrational. We don't always know why evil happens in our world. And we, may, we, we probably will never know for sure why Judas betrayed our Lord. But I do believe that we can have a, a few clues. We may not know exhaustively why Judas did this, but we can know a little bit, perhaps, of why. And we have to ask, well, when Judas went to betray our Lord, what did he say? You know, Jesus said, out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouth speaks. And you can tell a lot about someone's heart by what they say. What did Judas say? Verse 15. What are you willing to give me? What are you willing to give me? You see, Judas was looking to get something out of this betrayal. Perhaps he had grown weary, I imagine, of the self-sacrificing nature of the kingdom. He was tired of having no place to lay his head, caring for the poor and denying himself. And now Judas, he wants to get something out of this for himself. And now one might object that perhaps Judas just, he just made a one-time mistake. He just, he just had a one-time uh, flaw here. But the Gospel of John tells us differently that, in fact, this was a known character flaw that Judas had. Let's look at John 12, verses 4 through 8. And the story here is that there is a woman who poured all of this expensive perfume on Jesus. And Judas begins to object. And what he says was, why wasn't this perfume sold and money given to the poor? Well, seems like a fair objection, right? I was worth a year's wages. But John reveals us what's really going on. Verse 6, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. See, as a traveling preacher, Jesus needed donations from others to cover his needs for him and his apostles and his other disciples. And Judas was somehow respected enough to become the church treasurer. They put a little nominating committee together, and at their annual meeting, they elected the church treasurer, and it was Judas. And, <laughs> and to, to every church treasurer's lament, he groaned and said, why did I sign up for this? Uh, but no, am I right, Steve? Am I right? <laughs> it's a hard job. But Judas, he was trusted with these finances of the, of the disciples. But it was found out that Judas had succumbed to greed. And he would help himself to some of the money out of the bag. Now I'm guessing, as with all sin, this didn't start very big. It started very, very small. Perhaps if I just take a little bit of money out of the bag, no one's going to notice. And he does it one time. And then a few weeks go by, and he says, you know what, I really, I really want you know, some more money. And so he finds another opportunity to take some more. And as with all sin, when it starts small, when it's left unchecked, it begins to grow 
bigger and bigger and bigger. And Judas gets to the point where now he's being deceitful about ministry. He says that this woman should sell this perfume to the poor. It'd be worth a year's wages, i.e., there's going to be more money in our bag that I can draw from. And maybe people won't notice if there's more money here. I can take a little bit more out. And eventually, Judas got to the point where the devil had him totally trapped. John 13, 2 says, The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. You see, the enemy will take advantage when we go down the path of sin and enter into more, when it gets more and more unchecked. He'll begin to prompt us, to encourage us, to entice us, to betray our Lord. And Judas, he took that bait. Hook, line, and sinker. And so to get more money, he, he agrees to betray his Lord. And that begins the process which led to Jesus' death. And we must think, well, what would I have done if I was the treasurer for the disciples? What would I have done if I was in Judas' place? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Have we ever betrayed the Son of Man for just a little money? Have we ever cheated the books a little bit just for a little bit of gain? In our hearts, have we ever scoffed at the sacrificially generous teachings of Jesus Christ? Have we ever even in some ways served money rather than God? Have we kept increasing our standard of living rather than our standard of giving? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? So Judas betrays Jesus. But then the second thing that happens is the disciples desert him. They deserted him. So Judas, he decides to do this. Then they have the Last Supper, as many of you know. And then from there, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, where through, all throughout the night, Jesus is agonizing in prayer over about what's going to happen. And suddenly, in the middle of the night, Judas, with a crowd appears, who have clubs and who have swords. And it's scary. And they're ready to get him. And Judas approaches Jesus with that famous signal, the kiss of death. And the text says, the men stepped forward, they seized Jesus and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword and drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And you might think at this moment, Jesus would say, yes, let's get him, guys. It's time. Thank you. Thanks for protecting me. Yes, thank you. I mean, that's how every Hollywood movie would go. This is time for the hero. This is time for the king to win the victory. But no, what does Jesus do? He turns to him and rebukes him. And he says, this is not the way the Son of Man must go. This is not God's plan. This is not how the Scriptures will be fulfilled. You see, many thought that the Messiah would be the one who would come and save God's people, that he'd be a great military leader, that he would use violence, he'd use power, he'd use any means to overthrow the Romans and gain independence for the Jews. But Jesus, he says no to the sword. This is not how God's plan, this is not how the Scriptures will be fulfilled. And when the disciples, they realize really quickly, okay, Jesus... He's not going to protect us here. He's not going to use violence. And when they realize that he's not going to take the kingdom by force, what do they do? They flee. They desert him. They run away. Seemingly, disciples, they had more courage to be violent than to be persecuted. They had more courage to start a revolution than to be persecuted for Christ's sake. And because they deserted him, there was no one to stand up for him. There was no one to protect our Lord. There was no one to plead his innocence. The God who is present to all in their time of need, in his time of need, was left alone. 
Now, we may be harsh on the disciples at this point, but would any of us do better in our own power? I mean, can you imagine if you're in the middle of the night, a crowd coming with swords and clubs, and then your leader says, hey guys, we're not going to protect ourselves with violence. What would you do? What would you do? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? When we have to choose between staying with Jesus and facing hardship and fleeing, what's our gut choice? When life gets hard, when trouble comes, when trials come our way, do we quickly dismiss Christ? Do we perhaps maybe forget about him or push him to the side? Do we ever imagine that Christianity is primarily about us and our comforts and our desires? Do we ever act cowardly when we should stand up for Christ? Do we ever not share Christ with others because we too are fearful? Do we ever choose the way of violence and revenge rather than the way of love? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The disciples, they desert him. What happens next is number three, the religious leaders condemn him. Matthew 26, 57 says, Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. Notice that the religious people, they didn't assemble to worship God. They've assembled to condemn him to die. This is the utter irony and twist of the story. And they, they want to catch Jesus in, some, in something. So they're, they're looking for all kinds of false evidence for false witnesses. And they can hardly find anything. So Caiaphas, the high priest, he has to ask Jesus point blank, Are you the Messiah? And essentially Jesus says, You've said so. Those are your words, maybe not mine. You've said it. And Caiaphas, he takes this to be blasphemy. Claiming to be God and now under Jewish law, he has the ammo he needs. He can take Jesus out. But we have to stop ourselves and ask, why all the animosity towards Jesus? Wasn't he a healer? Wasn't he a teacher? Wasn't he a, a good person? Well, a little later, we get a clue. When they deliver him to Pilate, Pilate has some insight that the gospel writers record that I think the gospel writers recorded it because it's accurate. Matthew 27, 18 says, Pilate knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. Now, the word that the NIV translates self-interest, this is the Greek word for envy, for jealousy. And Jesus, he had been attracting a following. Everywhere he went, people were following him. And you know what people were saying? Hey, this man, he teaches not like the scribes, the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law. You actually teach as one who has authority. In other words, I'm almost shifting my, my allegiance from the, the religious leaders to this new prophet, to this Messiah. You don't teach like they do. In fact, you're different. You're maybe better. And he had a following everywhere he went. And if you're in a position of authority and you have other people under you and influence over them and somebody else comes along and begins to take the followers that are following you, begins to take them away from you, I think it's easy to have jealousy creep into your heart. And Caiaphas and the other religious leaders, they had a kingdom of their own that they wanted to hold on to with all of their power. And Jesus was a threat to that. He was a threat to their power, to their prestige, to their position, to their status in society because he could draw the people away from them and they would be following him instead. And they were envious because he was being celebrated and not them. So they decided to condemn him to death. Caiaphas says, this is blasphemy. What do you guys think? In verse 66, they say, he is worthy of death. Jesus died because the religious leaders of his day condemned him to die. What would we have done 
if we were the religious leaders in the story? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Do we ever compare ourselves to those around us? Do we compare in despair, perhaps? Do we get jealous at the success, at the giftedness, at the blessings of God in other people's lives? Do we ever use power to get our own way? Do we ever wish Jesus was more meek and mild and didn't demand our total allegiance? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? So Judas betrays him. Jesus is arrested. The disciples desert him and the religious leaders condemn him. But what's going on is the Jews, they're under Roman power at this time. And so they cannot, by law, they cannot execute Jesus to death. They must now hand him over to the Romans so that he can be executed. So they bring Jesus to the Roman governor called Pontius Pilate. Now we're going to get to Pilate in a second. But I want to look at the people that are there when Jesus is on trial before Pilate. I want to look at their response. And what they do is they reject Christ. Number four, the people rejected him. When the leaders brought Jesus to Pilate, Pilate did not think Jesus was guilty. He thought he was an innocent man. So Pilate, he's in a political pickle. He's a governor. He has to keep the peace. And he knows Jesus is innocent. And he doesn't want to condemn an innocent man to the most horrific death that the Romans would use. They'd only use it on slaves. They wouldn't use it on Roman citizens. And they didn't want to condemn, he didn't want to condemn this innocent man. But he also doesn't want a riot to break out. And if a riot breaks out on Passover, that's bad news for everybody. It's bad news for his job. It's bad news for his career. So Pilate, he's trying to somehow get the crowd to, to release Jesus, to get him out of it. And so he comes up with a plan. Mark 15 says it was at the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. And he's trying to get Jesus out of his look. He says, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of the self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. Now what's going on here is Barabbas, he was an insurrectionist. Remember, they wanted to overthrow the Romans. And so he took part in an uprising of a, a, a violent means of taking their independence back by force. And he was a known murderer along the way. Ironically, this is what many people hoped that Jesus would be like. That this is what the Messiah would do. That he would be violent. That he would win independence. That he would bring the country back to their, to their great days. But Pilate, he tries to get the crowd to release the real Messiah instead of the insurrectionist. And two men are set before the crowd. One man, a violent murderer. One who's trying to, who is set on nationalistic aims. And the other the Savior of the world, who is saving by peace and love and self-sacrifice. And so Pilate calls out to them and calls out to us, which man do you want? Which one do you want me to release for you? And the, but the chief priests, they stir up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. And then he says, well, what should I do then with the one that you call king of the Jews? And they say, crucify him. They shout at their lungs. You see, the people, they have a legitimate chance to release the Savior of the world, but instead they pick Barabbas. Instead they shout, crucify him. They rejected the Savior of the world who had come for them. And the gospel writers, I think, want us to get the point here. The guilty man gets to go free because the innocent man goes in his place. 
That's a picture of what Jesus is doing for all of us when he goes to the cross. But we must ask ourselves, if we were there, what would have happened? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they shouted, crucify him? Were you there when they chose Barabbas instead? You see, Barabbas, in a way, he symbolizes the kingdom of the world, the way the world works, versus the kingdom of Christ and his kingdom, which is not of this world. Have we ever chosen the kingdoms of the world over the kingdom of Christ? Have we ever chosen the way of violence over Christ? How many times have we preferred the world over Jesus? Violence over peace. Self over others. Prosperity over generosity. Have we ever condemned the innocent? Have we ever turned up our nose at injustices and done nothing? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? You know, it was not just the people who were responsible for this. Because Pilate was there, and he had the power to do something. And that's the last thing I want to communicate today, is that Pilate sent Jesus to die. Pilate sent him to die. If Judas was the worst legacy in history, Pilate has to be a close runner-up. He's got to be up there because even the Apostles' Creed, which we recite in the church, will forever remember Pontius Pilate as the one that Jesus suffered under. Pontius Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew that he was handed over out of envy, not because he was guilty. But look what happens. Mark 15, 15. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them instead of Christ. Pilate didn't want a riot to start. As governor, that was part of his job. His career could be at stake. But the primary reason Pilate does not release Jesus was because of the crowd, the demands of the crowd, the desires of the crowd, wanting to satisfy the crowd. Pilate wanted to maintain his innocence, even though he knew what he was doing was wrong. So he tries to get Herod to do something. He tries to release Barabbas to them instead. He tries to persuade the people. He even says, I find no basis for a charge against this man. He's trying to plead with the people, but to no avail. But Pilate finally caves in to all the pressure of the people. So he takes water and washes his hands in front of the crowd and says, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is, not, it is your responsibility. And all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. And then he releases Barabbas to them. And then he has Jesus' flogged. And he's handed, over to, handed him over to be crucified. Jesus died because Pilate was cowardly. Because Pilate wanted to please the crowd that day instead of to do the right thing. That, Pi that, that Pilate would not stand up for justice in the courts, but would do what pleased the crowd instead. And we must ask, would we do differently? Surely I can wash my hands of this like Pilate did. Were we there when they crucified our Lord? Do we ever, like Pilate, give, give lip service to Jesus? Say he's an innocent man. He's a good man. But by our actions, we deny him. Do we ever just simply believe in Jesus instead of letting him be the Lord of our lives? Do, you, do we ever let the desire to please others make us do things that displease Christ? Do we ever maybe falsely proclaim our own innocence like Pilate did? Do we ever abdicate our responsibility to, read light, to lead rightly in the positions that God has called us to do. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? 
Brothers and sisters, I'm afraid that this story should cause us to tremble, to tremble, to tremble. Because the verdict is in. Even though we weren't there in body, we were there in spirit. We share in the guilt that sent Jesus to the cross. Like Judas, we too have betrayed Christ. Like the disciples, we've deserted him. Like the religious leaders, we've condemned him. Like the people, we've rejected him. Like Pilate, we give in to the crowd and send him to die. In some mysterious way, what happened on the cross and what led to Jesus' death becomes very personal. That we have to recognize, somehow become aware that the same sin, the same guilt, the same evil that sent Jesus to the cross is in us. Is in us. And we must admit, in some strange way, we share in that, that Jesus was sent to the cross for your sin and for my sin and for the whole world's sin. And that is why Jesus died. We were there the whole way through. But when we put ourselves there, we realize there's a very strange twist in the story. Despite Jesus' perpetual betrayals, his beatings, and his torture, we find him loving those that were sending him to die. He still eats the Last Supper with Judas. He does not attack those who are accusing him. Rather, he remains silent. And for the very people who are crucifying him, he is praying for them, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And as Christ is beaten and whipped and tortured and nailed to that cross, we must remember that, yes, our sins put him there, but his love for us kept him there. Our sins put him there, but his love for us kept him there. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we can say with the Apostle Paul that, yes, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Yes, my sins set him there, but my sins were destroyed there. They were forgiven there. I was redeemed. I was delivered. I was healed. I was given grace. I was given mercy. I was set free. I should have been condemned like Barabbas, but I was released and the innocent man died in my place. That's what happened on the cross. Yes, my sin put him there. I was there. But in Christ, I was also there because in Christ, I am forgiven and I am loved and I am cherished and I am delighted in because that's what Jesus would do for me. That's why Christ died. Amen. We're going to tr transition to prayer this morning. And I'm going to give you about four minutes.